Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. And welcome to this uh, episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Uh, as we're still in COVID, then it's actually really engaging to be able to talk to people about how they're dealing with with COVID and, and how they're working. And uh, this interview, I'm really quite excited by because I sort of got into Human Factors properly in around 2000. And my first line manager um, was somebody who was quite inspirational for me because they were, uh, they were still are, um, an engineer first and then sort of got into Human Factors um as a, as a secondary thing which is very close to what i did so i'm very pleased to um welcome and introduce uh steve harmer so welcome steve hi barry good to see you um, yes it, it is a bit weird isn't it because this whole um we we seem to be able to do a lot more by zoom and by all the different tools that are available and obviously what we're doing this on on, on teams today um so I, in many ways, we find actually it's it's some ways it's easy to get hold of people than than we would have normally because actually you know to to have set this up properly then uh, we'd have uh, had to come to, come through to Bristol and all that sort of stuff. So thank you very much for taking the time. Um, so to introduce yourself, Steve, the um, what is your current role? What what is it that you that you do and who do you do do it for? Yeah. Well, I'm currently the Human Factors Capability Lead at BMT. Uh, I don't know if many people know BMT. Um, it's really a uh, it's quite a sizable engineering consultancy, most noted, I suppose, for its ship and submarine design. But actually, I work for part of BMT called BMT Defence and Security, and we look right across defence and increasingly security related programs. Um, so, you know, we're a small team. Uh, in fact, you know, you and I, Barry, worked at BAE Systems at the Advanced Technology Centre. We initially started as three of us who sort of jumped ship at the end. Um, and joined BMT. Uh, teams moved on a bit, people have left, people have joined, and there's about five of us, uh, six of us now. Um, so what do we do? Well, not surprisingly, perhaps for some people, we do a, a range of, of activities. Uh, a certain amount of what we do is, as you might expect, support to BMT engineering programs, so ship and submarine design programs. Um, and they might be, and for MOD, they might be for uh, non-UK uh, MOD customers. So we don't build anything as such, um, certainly in defence and security, we tend to be a design consultancy, so we will do ship and submarine designs. Um, we'll engage with shipbuilding yards to actually build uh, the, uh, the product itself. Um, so the team is involved with uh, supporting those engineering programmes, but also we do work directly for MOD through the engineering design partnership. So some people might know that previously as FATS. Um, so this is a, um, a contract which is now uh, run by Kinetic, BMT and um, Atkins. And that's to provide the various engineering and consultancy services into essentially into Abbey Wood. Um, so we do work customer side for MOD uh, of some of the delivery teams there. And as you will know, Barry, we also support um, DSDL, their research program, through the various frameworks, uh, mm -hmm. most notably the Human Social Science Research Capability, HSSRC, and before that, obviously, the DHSTC, but also things like uh, the DASA, Defence and Security Accelerator, 
and then other programs that are, that are emerging like Serapis, uh, Progeny, um, and we get involved with those, providing an HF element to really, I suppose, a multidisciplinary approach to some of the design and research some ish, uh, problems that come our way. Cool. So many things in many pies. Um, it seems to be, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because there, there seems to be lots and lots of frameworks in to be able to work with MOD. Um, but a lot of them seem to end back with the same sort of people. So you do sort of wonder why they couldn't just have one or two. It'd make life much easier. But that's obviously mm. my own. That's obviously my own opinion. Um, you do have a a long and distinguished career in um, human factors. But as I said at the beginning, you actually started off in um, engineering. Um, and I just wondered why. What 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 got you into HF? Why why were you inspired to go down down the HF route? Uh, well, I, yeah, I studied actually um, production engineering. Uh, the course I did was actually called Engineering with Business Studies. Um, and that was more, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I was one of those kids had a great ambition to go in a certain direction. I remember being at school uh, when I was about 10 years old and some guy turning to me and saying he wanted to be a lawyer when he grew up. And I had no idea at 10 years old what that was. And indeed, he ended <laughs> up being a lawyer. I wasn't one of those people who knew where I was going necessarily. Um, but I did know I was interested in engineering. And... Um, both, you know, at school, my stronger subjects were, were maths and physics. Uh, and I really enjoyed those. And outside school, I loved tinkering with cars. So I was taking engines out of minis and MGBs and loving that type of thing. Uh, and my dad, my, my dad had been an engineer. In fact, he'd been an MOD engineer um, initially um, at, down at Dockyard in Portsmouth. So he had a sort of naval background, I suppose, in that respect. So, so yeah, I ended up studying engineering with business studies, and and the honest truth is, um, my girlfriend was in was the psychologist, uh, and I and I <laughs> right. found what she did quite often found it much more interesting than what I was doing. It was quite yeah. different, uh, and I and I you know I sort of enjoyed talking to her about some of her course, and I wouldn't say that inspired me, but it certainly piqued my interest. Um, and then I was sort of fortuitous, really. I did a. a an industrial placement year at IBM at uh, Hursley, their labs at Hursley, um, as an as a production engineer, really. But mm -hmm. I ended up in a department called um, usability and performance. So we were looking at graphics workstations, and this is back in the mid '80s. So computers, a computer that would would produce a chart for you, much like PowerPoint at the time, was the size of a small house, it seemed. Uh, and we were looking at uh, the usability and the graphics performance. So really the time mm -hmm. it took to sort of generate some of these things. So I found myself sitting behind a one-way mirror with um, a load of temps that came in trying to do a series of tasks. And it was my first introduction, I suppose, to assessing usability and human factors in a, in a small way. And then I went back to my final year and actually had a small module on ergonomics in there, which I think most engineering degrees at that time uh, and certainly since do have um, and then I started looking for jobs um, in my final year production engineering jobs and I found out a little bit more about what really I've been studying for for the last four years <laughs> um, put on this white coat walk up and down this production line and look for things that you might improve and um, I realized perhaps I'd taken a bit of a wrong turn several years previously um, so I decided I found the, um, the master's course at Birmingham at the time, work design and ergonomics, and I studied that. And and then again, another another fortuitous happening. I, um, I went to the, the Ergonomic Society Conference, um, as it was called then, in that year, that would have been 1986. And uh, I bumped into a guy from BAE, 
uh, sorry, I was going to say BA Systems, British Aerospace, as it was at the time. Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, and he was looking for someone to work in the uh, cockpit group, but he wanted someone who could interface with the engineers. And he, he, he had it in his head that because they were principally psychologists, they were talking the wrong language to these engineers yeah. and he needed someone to interpret. So that's where I started. And I started, um, you know, I'm happy to talk to all the engineers and the draftsmen as they were at the time. Yeah. Um, but also happy to talk ergonomics and human factors to the rest of the team. Um, and and I stayed, I guess, essentially with British Aerospace, BAE Systems for the next 26 years. So, yeah, you, you must have enjoyed it then um, to be to stay in, in, in that role for for uh, such a period of time. The um, and obviously, as you said, the the end came to the Advanced Technology Centre when it, when it effectively closed down, didn't it? So, um, how did you find that jump of having been in one organisation for so long to then have to basically you you, you almost have to learn a new family, aren't you? Uh, so, how did you find that jump to a new organisation? Um, it was um, it was good actually. Uh, it, I I found it uh, easy. I found it uh, enlightening, interesting. But then I suppose when you look back to the sorts of things that you and I were doing with the ATC, um, we were constantly dealing with other areas of the business. We were constantly yeah. dealing with, with different teams. The work wasn't focused in one area. It was very outward looking. Um, and so, you know, I say I was with, with BA, uh, BA Systems for 26 years. Actually, I spent a little bit of time in MBDA. I spent a little bit of time in um, Thorny MI, Talis, as it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had done a little bit of moving around, and certainly within within British Aerospace, I've worked in in Hull, in Wharton, um, various places around the country. So adapting to a new team was something I think I was very familiar with doing all through yeah. my career. Um, what was particularly pleasant actually was going to a company which had slightly smaller. Um, well, it was a smaller company. Um, it's about 1,500 people across the globe in BMT, and there's only right. probably about four, four, five hundred um, in DAS UK in 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 UK. Um, and even then, it felt smaller than that. It felt um, a much more intimate company. And I think that that was a very pleasant experience, actually, to be able to be um, a voice in a smaller company rather than 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 what we'd experienced, I suppose, for 26 yeah. years in my case. At British Aerospace is a very small cog in a very big machine. So yeah, no, it's been good, and uh, and I've I've enjoyed it, and it's it's been a challenge because I think Human Factors was largely new to BMT, so trying to mm-hmm. grow that capability within a new company is is a challenge, and you face all the same issues that we see banded around at the moment to make trying to prove benefit, the cost benefit of Human Factors, um, trying to convince the people around you what you do is adding value um it, it's been a challenge but it's been enjoyable and the company's been quite supportive well that's really good um and i think that is becoming a bit of a common theme as well is there's a lot of companies who are starting to take you know produce their own uh, human factors groups and and actually engage with that sort of thing and it's it seems to have been a, a long slog in many ways but it there does seem to be something happening at the moment that people are starting to take it more seriously um which i don't know whether that's just because of the environment we're in but it, it does seem to be getting traction which i think is a which is a good thing i think one of the, the significant changes uh, not to be overlooked really is um there's been some work done in the last 10 years in particular to sort of 
bolster MOD's processes uh, and expectations in terms of HF and HFI, human factors integration. Um, I wouldn't say it's it's right yet. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do, but I think the efforts that have been made in the last decade or so, and the change that have been made to mod internal processes have started mm. to filter out to industry. And so we are finding that um, you could argue that whether BMT wanted to do human factors or not, it's facing programs where it has no choice. Uh, and yeah. uh, it's been asked to um, respond to a uh, to an MOD requirement. And we're also finding that there is there are business opportunities for my company working um, laterally across the, across the across the industry for sometimes quite large defense companies who them, themselves don't have an, in, you know, an organic human factor. So they're coming to us, um, partly because we've seen as being reasonably independent. We don't produce things. So in so many yeah. respects, we're not in competition. So we're, we're a comfortable partner to support them and provide that HF capability to, to companies which are facing an HFI requirement, which I, up to now they've not really seen. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. In your sort of career so far, you, as you say, you've been involved in a number of projects for a number of different people. What do you think has been your most memorable project so far? Yeah, to, to be honest, um, I'd like to sort of look back at my career and say that was my golden time and that was the re- that was the project that stood out. I'm actually quite pleased to say there's, there, you know, there's quite there's been quite a lot lot of memorable moments really, and I think one of the joys of this this discipline, I think, is you do find yourself, and perhaps maybe it's also a feature of working in defence, which is very very broad. You find yourself doing quite different things from mm. from month to month, and that keeps the job very interesting. So, I mean, I look back over my career, and you know, I, I've enjoyed many of the programs. When I first started, I was working on, I was thrown in really at the deep end. You know, I ended up being the lead lead ergonomist for the Sea Harrier FRS2 program. <laughs> uh, it sounds grand, but I think at the time there were three of us in the group, so someone had to lead it. Um, <laughs> you know, but that, you know, that led me to be immediately be dealing with uh, Royal Navy pilots and I'm working in simulators and I flew with the Navy. I flew in a Hunter, two-seat Hunter, you know, loop in the loop and barrel rolls and things. And this isn't this isn't typical stuff, really. I think, you know, this is yeah, yeah. really quite interesting stuff to get involved with. And, and I moved from that, worked on Tornado F3 and then uh, Hawk and crossed most of the British aerospace or BA systems, military aircraft programs at the time. Um, I did some fairly lengthy trials up at uh, RF Kinloss. That was very memorable. It was quite challenging, uh, but a fantastic time in a lovely part of the world. Just enjoyed, enjoyed a sort of winter up in uh, Kinloss. Lots of breweries around there. Sorry, lots of distilleries around there as well. There were lots of distilleries. Uh, yeah, I did visit some of them when I was up there. Very nice. So that helped. Uh, I was going to say that helped make it memorable. In some cases, not so much. Um, I spent a summer in, in uh, well, more than a summer, really, probably about eight months or so over in Texas working on uh, the US Hercules C-130 avionics modernization program. So that was, that was nice. Um, did some very 
good, I think, uh, and I say it's good, not just me because of the various other people involved, but some research work with Westlands, uh, as they were at the time, Leonardo now, I suppose, Western helicopters on future, on the links, future links, links wildcat, looking at uh, integration of some new weapon systems and sensor fusion technologies. And um, and now, even now, we're working on with um, the HSRC uh, and we're leading, I'm leading, a team of of eight organizations providing you know quite a large research program uh looking at future human machine interface design for for defense so you know it's it would be nice in a way it's just nice to be able to say that my whole career so far has been interspersed with quite interesting and uh, memorable programs really so there is no golden year it's just it's all been quite enjoyable and i think that's probably one of the things i I try and tell other people when I'm trying to, because obviously doing that go, that golden thing of what is it you actually do, and you try and explain what human factors is, and I still f struggle with that quite a lot. But when you when when I sort of get asked the question, oh, what's your typical project? I do like being able to say, I don't think there is a typical project. I think every project has its challenges, and um, but it's also most there. Ninety nine percent of them are fun because largely because you interact with people, and you and you're everything can be quite diverse um so yeah i, I completely uh, see where you're coming from with that um it can make the job it can make the job quite stressful on occasions i mean <laughs> it does feel like uh, unlike you know like some engineering disciplines where i think you you um you know if you're a structural engineer and you understand materials and structures um and you do that for 30 years you can become very very you know expert in that and yeah. and perhaps the next structural challenge you come across is no big challenge to you really it's, it's the same same sort of job maybe a different platform but i find that what we do as you said then we're often like now go and do something completely different you might be applying some of the basic tools mm. and, and techniques each time but the environment in which you're working the the, the users uh, maintainers trainers that you're dealing with um, are working in a completely different sphere so each time you go into a new program you find you're starting again and you're yeah. learning every time so you feel like you're learning a lot but it the, the downside of that is it's very difficult to come in and say i'm a i'm a domain expert in something where you've never worked before <laughs> yes um I'm, I'm still looking forward to that golden time where somebody's come come comes up with an idea and says right we got we're going to do human factors right from the very beginning um because this, I don't know about you, but sometimes a lot of the programs you feel like you're going in and you're having to firefight straight away to then get your domain experience up to the right level in order for you to add, add value, yeah. um, which is, um, yeah, it could be a challenge, I think. Um, and you constantly have to prove yourself as well, I find as well, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so we've been in, uh, as as of today, we've been in what lockdown for what seems like millions of years. Um, but it's about what 12, 13 weeks, something like that. Um, how have you found working from home? How have you found the whole challenge of, of, of having to interact in this sort of way and still trying to trying to deliver work? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, many people have said the whole thing is going to go to Helena Hancart, really. Um, but interestingly, I, I found it better really, in many respects. And uh, you said at the beginning there, um, you know, being able to get hold of people uh, and talk effectively face to face. And we use mm. MS Teams uh, and I'm finding it very, very good, pretty reasonably robust. Um, 
it's much easier. You know, I, I'm finding that the work that we were doing, for example, with DSTL, um, I can talk to them on a daily basis. I don't have to arrange a meeting and travel mm. off down Ports Down West or or Porton Down and go through security and take a whole day for a two hour meeting. It's a bit more instantaneous, really. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, I'm finding it pretty good. And, you know, on the social side, obviously, you don't get that social same same degree of social interaction but i meet my team twice a day you know we meet in the mornings to talk work and we meet in the afternoons just to chew the cud and um and it keeps it it keeps those interactions going um as a business oddly enough bmt uh, i think like a lot of businesses it um had big fears at the beginning in the outbreak of covid and um we were going to struggle like many other businesses but oddly enough, and to, I think to the amazement of our management, we've had probably the last three months, we've, we've smashed all our targets and everything seems to be going in completely opposite direction that they anticipated. <laughs> so so we'll see. I mean, I think, you know, we all know that um, the UK generally is going to suffer uh, financially and defence will no doubt um, suffer significantly in time, you know, when, when budgets budgets get cut to pay for the measures that the government have had to put in place for COVID-19, um, the industry will suffer. Uh, and so there are some rainy days ahead and it will become very competitive. And I think our discipline, like any, every other discipline, will will find some challenges in budget cutbacks. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, on a day-to-day -day basis, I think it's working quite well at the moment. Uh, it's it's there are some tasks which which we haven't had to do actually in the last few months, which will become quite tricky. And I think when you start having to to run trials, when you start having to engage with users just for some knowledge elicitation, workshopping, um, it can all be done remotely, but probably a bit more challenging uh, under these circumstances than they would normally be. Yeah, I, th I think are we certainly finding that at the moment of trying to do some, you know, the, the day to day, you know, generally getting stuff prepped and all that sort of stuff that's all fine and actually you're right we can be way more efficient because you just you, you can almost sequence meetings a lot tighter as well because you're not having to do that travel and things like that um but yeah it's the big that's the big worry i have at the moment is we've been doing a lot of agile work and trying to you know the value of a workshop is getting people in the room reading body language and things like that which we i think is going to be a struggle and i, I think there's going to be some there's, there's lots of stuff i think being put off in a view to well once we have covid then we can crack on with that element of it yeah. um and just i guess from the security aspect there's a load of really good tools out there that we just can't use um because of the security aspect and and things so i think we've still got a way to go but do you think there's stuff that you're going to do differently once we finish covid um there's i guess there's a big fear that a lot of companies will go back and say right that's all over back to the way we were um do you think there's stuff that you're going to take from this um, and and do things differently, say with your team or how you engage? Oh yeah, I think this is going to be a major sort of major shift um, in the way we work in the future. Uh, my my company, uh, given the size that we are, I think it recognises whilst it recognises the challenge of working remotely, it also recognises the benefits. We we, we're based in Bath as a company. You know, real estate in Bath is very expensive. <laughs> We've got three buildings in Bath. Uh, do we need all three? Um, we spend a fortune on rent. Uh, I think as a business, we can be more efficient working, allowing our employees to work um, remotely, work from home. 
uh, it's been shown to work. So um, I think, and certainly my discussions with MOD uh, are the same. I think a lot of companies are now thinking this has been a sort of enforced experiment on companies to see mm, how, yeah. how effectively can they work with their with their employees based largely at home. And uh, I think a lot of companies have been surprised that it's worked pretty well. Uh, and now they're thinking, well, this is perhaps we need to look at different models and there are savings to be made by by working this way. Um, yeah, and it's it's not just just in your working life. Uh, so there's a couple of guys in my team at the moment are looking to buy houses at the moment. And suddenly they're shifting their views and thinking, well, do I need to be that close to work? If I'm going to yeah. be working from home three, four days a week, uh, I might as well go and live in the sticks and save myself a fortune on property prices. So there's a lot of change ahead. And I, 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 I believe and I certainly hope that companies will look at this and think well actually we can learn a lot from this there's a different way to work and um and partly i think that that's that's involved trust trust in employees i think up to now the reason a lot of companies haven't embraced home working is because there's a nervousness about you know can i trust people to be, <laughs> be that productive while they're while they're at home will they be watching home under the hammers uh, um homes under the hammer every uh, every five minutes um and that's that's proven that that isn't the case, really. And and so, um, you know, that there's a lot of lessons that have been learned. And I, I think going forwards, this will become, yeah, it'll become the new normal, won't it? It will just be, yeah. we will be working from home much more. You know, yeah, I think you do that anyway, Barry. Well, Liz, I mean, certainly you sort of say about moving out to the sticks. I mean, that's obviously... I don't think I, uh, I think people locally would get annoyed at me calling Natalie the the sticks. But yes, we made that choice about moving out, and actually, this has worked for me absolutely amazingly because um, my um, current client was is is up in Cumbria, or one of my clients is up in Cumbria, and I was having to travel up to there six hours drive, you know, once twice a week. Um, whereas now I've you know worked for the past twelve weeks at home, and actually the family feels like I've actually moved in now, um, <laughs> which is um, which is great. In fact, I had my first day back in my office yesterday um and that just felt very weird because normally if you work from home then you can right i'll have a cup of coffee i'll go and sit in the garden i'll do whatever and but then i was back in the office environment and i was like actually this is this now feels odd um which was which was quite interesting mm. but um but have you learned anything about yourself in doing this is is, is has there been any great revelations about how about you know the way that you cope under under pressure or stress or or anything like that when you've been going through because it's quite a big deal i'm a big pandemic isn't there um so have you learned anything about yourself or has it just been more tough for ducks back um i suppose so i mean one of, one of the things i've been quite acutely aware of is how much of my life i've wasted commuting uh, <laughs> I mean, I, when I was working up at uh, um, Filton for BA for, for probably, what, 15 years or so, I was based up there. My commute each way was about an hour and a half each way, so three hours a day. And suddenly the day seems, um, it's just more, more time available to me. I can do a longer working day and still get out on the golf course in the evening. So, um, yeah, I mean, a bit, bit late in the day to realise it, but I was wasting too much of my time commuting. So that, that's been good. Um, also, I think you do, you know, one thing, I think forcing a, a, um, a working day on someone, and especially one which has a commute into an office, the rest of it, it gives you structure in your day. And if you're not careful, you do lose that, I think, mm. uh, under these circumstances. So, you know, I've definitely had a few days um, 
well, I've, I've just not got out of my pajamas. I've just worked all day, sat in my pajamas. And you need, and after a while, you think I can't go on like this. I've got to yeah. actually start putting some structure, some discipline into my day. Um, you know, forcing yourselves to get out, out of the place, um, do some exercise, which might have come inherently from from a normal day's work. But working at home like this, um, it, it, I think you have to be a little bit more disciplined in getting away from work, really, because it's quite easy to log on in the morning and find it at seven o'clock in the evening. You have not left your chair. Yeah. Yes. I've, I've got a lot of sympathy with that. The I got told a couple of weeks ago I had to take a week off. Um, because apparently I was I was getting a bit stressy. Who knew? Um, but the but I was like, well, what's the point in taking a week off? Because I'm just going to be sat here. You know, I'm still going to be at home. I'm not going to get um, changed. But anyway, obviously, I'm not the boss of that sort of thing. So I got told I was taking a week off. So I, I took a week off. And actually, I was surprised that actually, yes, you know, I did feel I'd, I had the benefit from that. And you sort of do can. It's very easy to get sucked down into. I'm very good at telling other people they should be taking time off, and then just rubbish at doing it myself. So yeah, it's. Um, that, I, I, I absolutely sympathize with that. Um. If you are a human factors practitioner or in a related discipline and are not already a member, then do look up the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. They are the professional institution for all human factors practitioners. Find them at www.ergonomics.org.uk. You're currently chairing the Chart Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors Defence Sector Group, which is in itself is a um, as a name is a new group. Um, but could you tell us a bit more about it? What is it, and what does it do? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> in that, it's for us. It's so. First, I should should say to start with, I co-chair that actually with Laird Evans at the moment. So Laird as you will know, is now based at uh, at the Abbey Wood team, uh, the, the HFI cell there. Um, and what happened there was, uh, and I'll, t- I'll, go, I'll go real back a, a few months, maybe a year. So I found myself at work with a little bit of time on my hands, and I, I started um, delving in around the, the, the Institute's uh, website. And I don't know how I managed it, but I managed to find my my way to a page which was on the various sector groups and the defence sector group. Uh, so it seemingly existed at the time, uh, it's a year ago, uh, and I read some of the text there about human factors, uh, human factors integration in a defence context, and I didn't recognise it. It, it wasn't it wasn't what I recognised as the job that we did in defence or the processes that we used, uh, and so. Um, Cheekily, I just wrote back to the Institute and said, well, you know, I've stumbled upon across this page. This doesn't seem to be right. Uh, I, I've taken the liberty of rewriting it. Perhaps if you get a chance to update it, you could, you could throw this information up onto the website. Uh, and immediately the um, the CEO at the time, Steve Barraclough, came back to me and said, oh, you know, yes, the um, the defence sector group has been a bit dormant for some time. And, uh, and we're looking for people to pick that up and, and take it on. Um, so I sort of unwittingly put myself in the limelight a little bit there. Uh, and so I had a, a chat with Steve. He subsequently left, and now we've got uh, Norseman in, in position. Um, what we, what I suggested to him at the time is that, uh, yeah, yeah, it'd be a good idea to, to um, rejuvenate, um, bring back the defence sector group in the Institute. And certainly in my career, if I go back to the early stage of my career and I went to the society conference, it was... Um, 
defense was a was a big theme you know there were, i would say it was 50 percent of the of the of the conference was talking around defense applications for human factors latterly that's really tailed off and i think yeah. defense kind of um took less interest i think in in the affairs of the institute and the and the conference itself so um that's a shame and, and i think uh, steve barraclough and norseman very keen to make sure that defence comes back and um, and takes more interest in in our institute. So, um, but what I suggested to both of them was that rather than than um, start another group, which would be largely populated by the same people that you and I work with across defence on a regular yep. basis, we already have a thing called the Modern Industry, or it was called the Modern Industry HFI Working Group. Um, which now actually, as you're probably aware, is is been split into uh, a mod industry HFI liaison group, which is a larger um, a larger body, which enables us to sort of exchange best practice and, and talk about successes and failures um, and help maybe guide as best we can in a forum of that size, um, the development of process and techniques within, within a defense context. And also now we have an HFI steering group, which is a much smaller uh, body, which is a little bit more focused on on policy and standards for uh, defense, defense, human factors, human factors integration. So I'd said, you know, that you, we already have in existence this body. Uh, the Modern GHFI Liaison Group has a circulation of around about 60 people. Most of our meetings are around about 25, 30 people. We meet a couple of times a year. So we already have this. Um, can this not act as a defense sector group? Uh, and the answer is yes, uh, we've had to change our process a little bit, be a bit more open, so invite people from outside defence into that forum. Um, but that's where we are, so it's automatically become the defence sector group as well. For the any of the, any of the sector groups at the moment, there seems to be this effort by the Institute to, um, as I say, restart them to some extent yeah. uh, and re-establish new groups. So, in fact, we had the first meeting, so it's really early days. We had the first meeting earlier this week of the sector group leads. So we had pharmaceuticals there, healthcare, uh, there's one workspace, which is slightly strange sector, not really a sector as such. Um, uh, Defence obviously was there. Uh, there. There were probably a couple of others I can't recall at home. So, so this was um, a meeting chaired by Norseman, chaired by the CEO, uh, looking at how those sector groups can um, develop their own practices themselves, work across sectors, what they can contribute to the um, next year's conference, for example, uh, and what initiatives each of those sector groups can bring to the Institute to really promote um, um, the practice of human factors um, in, in a very broad sense. So, cool. so it's sort of early days. Um, you will start to see some events uh, from each of the sector groups advertised across the um, Institute's uh, various media. Um, so there'll be things like webinars. We're talking about possibly having debates and things run from, from yeah. sector groups about certain topics. Um, so really giving something back into the Institute but also outwardly looking as well, how we can promote human factors um, to society in general, really. Yeah. So, as you say, it, it isn't a new group. Working in um, human factors and defence has been sort of an ongoing thing um, for quite a while. And there are some exciting projects out there. But how do you think um, 
if you were to try and explain to somebody else who works in, say, more uh, more civil applications or that type of thing, how do you think working in defence human factors differs from normal industry, for want of a better expression? Um, well, I mean, there are differences. There are also lots of similarities in the types of things we get involved with and the the, the design challenges, uh, whether that be of an of a piece of equipment, of an organisation. Um, there are very there are lots of similarities, but but I suppose and it's difficult for me. I mean, my, all of my career has been in defence. So it's very difficult mm. from within defence to say this is how it differs from other sectors. I I don't have the experience of working in other sectors, but my perception is that um, one of the things that defence has is scale and size and scale. So you can look into defence, and we talked earlier about the, the variety of work we've both been involved with it in our careers. And, you know, within defence, defence encompasses medical, transportation, nuclear, automotive, in my case, ship design, aviation, air traffic control, organisational design. It's It's got everything, really, um, that you might experience uh, in a more, in another sector where you might be a bit more focused. Um, you know, I've heard people saying to me, you know, defence can learn from air traffic control. Um, I'm sure we can learn from what's going on in, in NATS and what they do in air traffic control. But that's not to forget that defence has air traffic control. You know, we have both um, local air traffic control for, for air bases, for um, forward operating bases, and then air traffic control for, for major RAF installations across the globe. So, yeah. you know, all of those challenges that you might find in working in air traffic control design you're going to find in defense somewhere yes yeah so so one of the one of the differences is as i say it's just scale um, and and that's good good for us um it gives us an enormous amount of variety and, and you can choose i think uh, a career in in the defense you can choose to specialize in a certain area or you can remain reasonably agile and, and bounce around and, and pick up the experience from working in many, many different areas um Budget-wise, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, budget-wise, I mean, think people looking into defence would think, you know, it's it's an area where the government spends a lot of money, and we see in the press, you know, programmes, uh, one that you might be working on, Barry, <laughs> uh, gazillions of pounds being spent on it, and subsequently that filters down to some reasonably healthy budgets for for the human factors specialists working within those those teams. There are for every well-funded budget, uh, hundreds of poorly funded budgets in defence, yeah. uh, where you're trying to apply human factors on a shoestring, in effect, uh, or or you might not even be able to get in the door because it's just not enough money to support that that perceived specialist engineering discipline. Um, and so, you know, there are some some real challenges in trying to do something add value from a human factors perspective into some programs where uh, there ought to be more attention to human factors and there ought to be more budget allocated to them but there isn't no i i, I absolutely agree it's the um and also i think i still find it difficult um to sell early human factors so the idea that you if you invest in the early human factors you'll actually save yourself a load of money later on because you're not having to five item fix it um, that is still a message that I still feel is very difficult to try and get across because, like I said, really short budgets 
um, and they look to try and cut stuff quite early on. Um, so, and I don't know how we really solve that because it seems to be a an, an ongoing problem that we'll we'll always get to, something always needs to be cut, um, and we largely end up being quite high up on that list. Um, I think it's um, you know, it, it is as ever really that's probably the biggest challenge, isn't it? It's it's making sure you apply our discipline at the right point in, in time that it can really make a difference. Um, and, and yes, I mean, you can make a difference in terms of retrospectively redesigning an interface or, or um, pointing out some problems with uh, the organizational design and not enough people in this team, and let's do something about it. It can it can make a difference, but it's not the most effective way to come up with a with an <laughs> optimized solution, you know, apply this kind of thinking earlier on. But it, it takes it takes um, a certain amount of um, knowledge from the senior management in a program. They have to understand that in a way you have to invest to save, really. Yeah. Um, and that's the same, you know, in a broader sense, that's that would be the same argument apply to the whole of, you know, a systems systems engineering approach, really. You need to sort of understand the requirements, analyze those requirements. You de-risk early, and it costs a little bit of money to de-risk in the first place, but it yeah. will pay dividends downstream in design and then acceptance of the of the eventual system, product, whatever it is you're working on. Um, but you're right, uh, and it's increasingly a problem because, as I say, budgets in any sector really are under pressure. And defense is no exception. Um, and also, I think one of the things that's changed is this perception that anything's possible and, and actually most things are off the shelf. Um, and so we're finding our IMOD customers, they don't, there aren't so many new design programs starting from scratch, clean sheet yes. of paper. It's, it's, you know, what can we cobble together from what's out there? You know, we can see that it can be done by Microsoft. Why can't you do, you know? Um, <laughs> Yes. And so consequently, there is an expectation that things will be delivered faster. Um, and that really bites into any time you've got to do any kind of groundwork in terms of really de-risking your program and understanding those early human factors issues that you need to be working on. Um, to counter that slightly, um, I think, as I said earlier, some of the measures that have been put in place by Abbey Wood and the team at Abbey Wood, the HFI cell there, and the influence they've had on the procurement process are working in our favour. So there now is an expectation on mod projects, most mod projects, that you will do some form of early human factors analysis, that you'll understand, you'll plan your human factors uh, effort, and you will base that on understanding where the risks, potential risks lie in the design of the programme. So um, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think, you know, it's... It's, it's it's what we're seeing. Things things are just working faster, um, which is why you know when when people come along talking about UX and agile and I can deliver it quicker and faster and cheaper, <laughs> Emode is going to bite your arm off. Uh, I've yet to be convinced that that will be the case, but maybe that's a, a debate for another meeting. No, I, I yeah, I mean I've, I've talked a lot on agile in the past, and I agree. It's it's one of the first things I try and say is if you think you with agile, I think if you're going to do it, if you think you're going to get it quicker, then you're not listening um that it's not you're just doing it differently um but as you say well, let's uh, let's have another debate on that at some point but, but actually when we, we be, what would be really nice is to actually see see that with some results 
so we can do a, a real good compare and contrast. Yeah. This podcast is supported by K Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. So you mentioned earlier that one of the programs, your research programs you involved with is around sort of technical interfaces and, and things like that. What do you see as the biggest technical challenge that we're going to face in, in the near future? So the next five to 10 years, say. Um, technical challenge. Well, I mean, first, I just mentioned their speed of change. So, so I think this, you know, when I started work, uh, you know, oddly enough, uh, I'm, I'm not that old, but I we didn't have, <laughs> we didn't have computers on our desks. I mean, I, I wrote reports with a pencil and then gave it to a secretary to type up. So I'm old enough to, to worked in those days. Um, yeah. the speed of change in terms of technology is, is, I mean, it's, it's a truism, everybody knows it, but it's accelerating. Yeah. Uh, that means that um, just trying to stay abreast of the art of the possible is, is a massive challenge for anyone, and it is for us in our discipline as well. Um, also, given that speed of change, uh, in order for, for any engineering environment, any sector, but, but also for the defence sector, to stay ahead of the of the game and and be anywhere near what we might have called the leading the leading edge <laughs> end, um, means that you can't have programs that take 10 years to turn around a design they've got to be done much more more quickly and all the time for us that bites into this um ability to do some upfront analysis prototyping de-risking of design um so we've got to get we've got to get much more agile we've got to get quicker um no, but not at the expense of applying um, the knowledge and the science, the science base that we have in human factors. Otherwise, we're just flower arranging, aren't we? That's all we're yep. doing if we, if we have to do it that quickly. Um, so I think our speed of change and society's expectations in terms of technological capability. So, you know, the MOD is no different from anywhere else. They are expecting a certain level of, of capability in their systems. That's a big challenge for us. The thing that uh, seems to pervade defence, and I'm sure it's the same in many other sectors, is everyone is talking about um, autonomy and, and AI, and and you know at least now they're talking about human autonomy teaming. Uh, so there's a recognition that it isn't all about robots taking over the world. It is a partnership between humans and autonomy. I think there's an awful lot of talk about it. I don't think there's a really good grounding in, in science in terms of how that relationship should work. Yeah. We don't seem to have moved on much from fits list in terms of, you know, men are best that, machines are best that. Some of those underlying principles need to be worked up. We need to understand exactly what that relationship should be, where the focus of control is in human autonomy teams. And I think there is, again, because of the timescales, programs that I've seen and been involved with, um, technologists will jump in and just make autonomy happen. Yes. Um, and human factors has an enormous role to play in this. And and that is a big challenge for us. It's, it's almost, you, you want to just say, oh, slow down a little bit. Let's establish some sensible principles of design for human autonomy teams. Um, that's a big technical challenge and it's affecting just about every area you see at the moment. Yeah. 
Um, so that, yeah, optimizing that human machine blend so that, you know, performance and safety remain optimized. And it's, you know, I, I could probably be saying this 40 years ago, but without creating that blend, but without creating a de-skilled, demotivated workforce is a big challenge for us. You know, yeah. we will, if we automate out all the, all the easy bits, we'll end up with a, with a residue of tasks, which, you know, will have enormous problems for, for MOD in terms of recruitment and retention. You know, who wants to go and watch watch a, a UAV do its job all day? Not me. Quite. Um, Steve, thank you very much for your um, time this morning. Um, clearly, the best of uh, luck with the um, with the defence sector group. I look forward to seeing what that um, what that delivers, and hopefully attending meetings, and obviously what it's going to hopefully inject in back into the conference. Um, so we'll hopefully see that in the in the next year or year or so. Um, I hope that you stay safe through the the rest of this COVID thing, and and look forward to meeting up with you physically again at some point soon. Because I think there's some long overdue beers there at some point. Yeah, um, you can buy it, Barry. <laughs> darn it. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, and hopefully catch up with you again soon. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Good to see you, Barry. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.